Chapter Thirteen of the Mystery of Edwin Drood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. The Mystery of Edwin Drood, the unfinished novel by Charles Dickens. Chapter Thirteen. Both at their best. Miss Twinkleton's establishment was about to undergo a serene hush. The Christmas recess was at hand. What had once, and at no remote period, been called, even by the erudite Miss Twinkleton herself, the half, but what was now called, as being more elegant and more strictly collegiate, the term, would expire to-morrow. A noticeable relaxation of discipline had, for some days, pervaded the nun's house. Club suppers had occurred in the bedrooms, and a dressed tongue had been carved with a pair of scissors, and handed round with the curling-tongs. Portions of marmalade had likewise been distributed on a service of plates constructed of curl-paper, and cowslip wine had been quaffed from the small squat measuring-glass, on which little Ricketts, a junior of weakly constitution, took her steel-drops daily. The housemaids had been bribed with various fragments of ribband, and sundry pairs of shoes more or less down at heel, to make no mention of crumbs in the beds. The airiest costumes had been worn on these festive occasions, and the daring Miss Ferdinand had even surprised the company with a sprightly solo on the comb and curl-paper, until suffocated in her own pillow by two flowing-haired executioners. Nor were these the only tokens of dispersal. Boxes appeared in the bedrooms, where they were capital at other times, and a surprising amount of packing took place, out of all proportion to the amount packed. Largesse, in the form of odds and ends of cold cream and pomatum, and also of hairpins, was freely distributed among the attendants. On charges of inviolable secrecy, confidences were interchanged respecting golden youth of England expected to call at home on the first opportunity. Miss Giggles, deficient in sentiment, did indeed profess that she, for her part, acknowledged such homage by making faces at the golden youth. But this young lady was outvoted by an immense majority. On the last night before a recess, it was always expressly made a point of honour that nobody should go to sleep, and that ghosts should be encouraged by all possible means. This compact invariably broke down, and all the young ladies went to sleep very soon, and got up very early. The concluding ceremony came off at twelve o'clock on the day of departure, when Miss Twinkleton, supported by Mrs. Tisher, held a drawing-room in her own apartment, the globes already covered with brown holland, where glasses of white wine and plates of cut pound-cake were discovered on the table. Miss Twinkleton then said— Ladies, another revolving year has brought us round to that festive period, 
at which the first feelings of our nature, bounded in our... Miss Twinkleton was annually going to say bosoms, but annually stopped on the brink of that expression and substituted hearts. Our hearts. <clears throat> Again a revolving year, ladies, has brought us to a pause in our studies. Let us hope our greatly advanced studies, and, like the mariner in his bark, the warrior in his tent, the captive in his dungeon, and the traveller in his various conveyances, we yearned for home. Did we say on such an occasion, in the opening words of Mr. Addison's impressive tragedy, the dawn is overcast, the morning lowers, and heavily in clouds brings on the day, the great, the important day? Not so. From horizon to zenith, all was couleur de rose, for all was rendolent of our relations and friends. May we find them prospering as we expected? Might they find us prospering as they expected? Ladies, we would now, with our love to one another, wish one another good-bye and happiness until we meet again, and when the time should come for our resumption of those pursuits which— here a general depression set in all round— pursuits which— pursuits which— then let us ever remember what was said by the Spartan general— in words too trite for repetition, at the battle it were superfluous to specify. The handmaidens of the establishment, in their best caps, then handed the trays, and the young ladies sipped and crumbled, and the bespoken coaches began to choke the street. Then leave-taking was not long about, and Miss Twinkleton, in saluting each young lady's cheek, confided to her an exceedingly neat letter, addressed to her next friend at law, with Miss Twinkleton's best compliments, in the corner. The missive she handed, with an air as if it had not the least connection with the bill, but were something in the nature of a delicate and joyful surprise. So many times had Rosa seen such dispersals, and so very little did she know of any other home, that she was content to remain where she was, and was even better contented than ever before, having her latest friend with her. And yet her latest friendship had a blank place in it, of which she could not fail to be sensible. Helena Landless, having been a party to her brother's revelation about Rosa, and having entered into that compact of silence with Mr. Chris Sparkle, shrank from any allusion to Edwin Drood's name. Why she so avoided it was mysterious to Rosa, but she perfectly perceived the fact. But for the fact she might have relieved her own little perplexed heart of some of its doubts and hesitations by taking Helena into her confidence. As it was, she had no such vent. She could only ponder on her own difficulties, 
and wonder more and more why this avoidance of Edwin's name should last, now that she knew, for so much Helena had told her, that a good understanding was to be re-established between the two young men when Edwin came down. It would have made a pretty picture, so many pretty girls kissing Rosa in the cold porch of the nun's house, and that sunny little creature peeping out of it, unconscious of sly faces carved on spout and gable peeping at her, and waving farewells to the departing coaches, as if she represented the spirit of rosy youth abiding in the place to keep it bright and warm in its desertion. The horse High Street became musical with the cry in various silvery voices, "'Good-bye, Rosebud, darling!' and the effigy of Mr. Saps's father over the opposite doorway seemed to say to mankind, "'Gentlemen, favour me with your attention to this charming little last lot left behind,' and bid with a spirit worthy of the occasion. Then the staid street, so unwantonly sparkling, youthful and fresh for a few rippling moments, ran dry, and Cloisterham was itself again. If Rosebud in her bower now waited Edwin Drood's coming with an uneasy heart, Edwin for his part was uneasy too. With far less force of purpose in his composition, than the childish beauty, crowned by acclamation Fairy Queen, of Miss Twinkleton's establishment, he had a conscience, and Mr. Grugius had pricked it. That gentleman's steady convictions of what was right and what was wrong in such a case as his, were neither to be frowned aside nor laughed aside. They would not be moved. But for the dinner in Staple Inn, and but for the ring he carried in the breast-coat of his pocket, he would have drifted into their wedding-day without another pause for real thought, loosely trusting that all would go well left alone. But that serious, putting him on his truth to the living and the dead, had brought him to a check. He must either give the ring to Rosa, or he must take it back. Once put into this narrowed way of action, it was curious that he began to consider Rosa's claims upon him more unselfishly than he had ever considered them before, and began to be less sure of himself than he had ever been in his easy-going days. "'I will be guided by what she says, and by how we get on,' was his decision, walking from the gatehouse to the nun's house. "'Whatever comes of it,' I will bear his words in mind, and try to be true to the living and the dead. Rosa was dressed for walking. She expected him. It was a bright, frosty day, and Miss Twinkleton had already graciously sanctioned fresh air. Thus they got out together before it became necessary for either Miss Twinkleton or the deputy high priest, Mrs. Tisher, to lay even so much as one of those usual offerings on the shrine of propriety. "'My dear Eddie,' said Rosa, when they had turned out of the high street, and had got among the quiet walks in the neighbourhood of the cathedral and the river, "'I want to say something very serious to you. I have been thinking about it for a long, long time.' "'I want to be serious with you too, Rosa dear. 
I mean to be serious and earnest. Thank you, Eddie. And you will not think me unkind, because I begin, will you? You will not think I speak for myself only, because I speak first? That would not be generous, would it? And I know you are generous. He said, I hope I am not ungenerous to you, Rosa. He called her pussy no more. Never again. And there is no fear, pursued Rosa, of our quarrelling, is there? Because, Eddie, clasping her hand on his arm, we have so much reason to be very lenient to each other. We will be, Rosa. That's a dear good boy. Eddie, let us be courageous. Let us change to brother and sister from this day forth. Never be husband and wife? Never. Neither spoke again for a little while. But after that pause he said with some effort, Of course I know that this has been in both our minds, Rosa, and of course I am in honour bound to confess freely that it does not originate with you. No, nor with you, dear, she returned with pathetic earnestness. That sprung up between us. You are not truly happy in our engagement, and I am not truly happy in it. Oh, I am so sorry, so sorry. And there she broke into tears. I am deeply sorry too, Rosa, deeply sorry for you. And I for you, poor boy, and I for you. This pure young feeling, this gentle and forbearing feeling of each toward the other, brought with it its reward in a softening light that seemed to shine on their position. The relations between them did not look wilful or capricious or a failure in such a light. They became elevated into something more self-denying, honourable, affectionate, and true. "'If we knew yesterday,' said Rosa, as she dried her eyes, "'and we did know yesterday, and on many, many yesterdays, "'that we were far from right together in those relations "'which were not of our own choosing, "'what better could we do to-day?' and change them. It is natural that we should be sorry, and you see how sorry we both are, but how much better to be sorry now than then. When, Rosa? When it would be too late, and then we should be angry besides. Another silence fell upon them. And you know, said Rosa innocently, you couldn't like me then, and you can always like me now, for I shall not be a drag upon you, or a worry to you. And I can always like you now, and your sister will not tease or trifle with you. I often did it when I was not your sister, and I beg your pardon for it. Don't let us come to that, Rosa, or I shall want more pardoning than I like to think of. No, indeed, Eddie, you are too hard, my generous boy, upon yourself. 
Let us sit down, brother, on these ruins, and let me tell you how it was with us. I think I know, for I have considered about it very much since you were here last time. You liked me, didn't you? You thought I was a nice little thing? Everybody thinks that, Rosa. Do they? She knitted her brow musingly for a moment, and then flashed out with the bright little induction. Well, but say they do. Surely it was not enough that you should think of me only as other people did now, was it? The point was not to be got over. It was not enough. And that is just what I meant. This is just how it was with us, said Rosa. You liked me very well, and you had grown used to me, and had grown used to the idea of our being married. You accepted the situation as an inevitable kind of thing, didn't you? It was to be, you thought, and why discuss or dispute it? It was new and strange to him to have himself presented to himself so clearly, in a glass of her holding up. He had always patronised her, in his superiority to her share of woman's wit. Was that but another instance of something radically amiss in the terms on which they had been gliding towards a lifelong bondage? And this, that I say of you, is true of me as well, Eddie. Unless it was, I might not be bold enough to say it. Only... The difference between us was that, by little and little, there crept into my mind a habit of thinking about it, instead of dismissing it. My life is not so busy as yours, you see, and I have not so many things to think of. So I thought about it very much, and I cried about it very much too, though, though that was not your fault, poor boy when all at once my guardian came down to prepare for my leaving the nun's house. I tried to hint to him that I was not quite settled in my mind, but I hesitated and failed, and he didn't understand me. But he is a good, good man. And he put before me so kindly and yet so strongly how seriously we ought to consider in our circumstances, that I resolved to speak to you the next moment we were alone and grave. And if I seem to come to it easily just now, because I came to it all at once, don't think it was so really, Eddie, for, oh, it was very, very hard, and, oh, I am very, very sorry." Her full heart broke into tears again. He put his arm around her waist, and they walked by the riverside together. "'Your guardian has spoken to me too, Rosa dear. I saw him before I left London.' His right hand was in his breast, seeking the ring, but he checked it as he thought, "'If I am to take it back, why should I tell her of it?' That made you more serious about it, didn't it, Eddie? And if I had not spoken to you as I have, you would have spoken to me? 
I hope you can tell me so. I don't like it to be all my doing, though it is so much better for us. Yes, I should have spoken. I should have put everything before you. I came intending to do it. But I never could have spoken to you as you have spoken to me, Rosa. Don't say you meant so coldly or unkindly, Eddie, please, if you can help it. I mean so sensibly and delicately, so wisely and affectionately. That's my dear brother. She kissed his hand in a little rapture. The dear girls will be dreadfully disappointed, added Rosa, laughing, with the dewdrops glistening in her bright eyes. They have looked forward to it so, poor pets. Ah, uh, but I fear it will be a worse disappointment to Jack, said Edwin Drood with a start. I never thought of Jack. Her swift and intent look at him, as he said the words, could no more be recalled than a flash of lightning can, but it appeared as though she would have instantly recalled it if she could, for she looked down, confused, and breathed quickly. "'You don't doubt it being a blow to Jack, Rosa?' She merely replied, and that evasively and hurriedly. Why should she? She had not thought about it. He seemed to her to have so little to do with it. "'My dear child, can you suppose that any one so wrapped up in another, Mrs. Tope's expression, not mine, as Jack is in me, could fail to be struck all of a heap by such a sudden and complete change in my life? I say sudden, because it will be sudden to him, you know. She nodded twice or thrice, and her lips parted as if she would have assented, but she uttered no sound, and her breathing was no slower. How shall I tell Jack? said Edwin, ruminating. If he had been less occupied with the thought, he might have seen her singular emotion. I never thought of Jack. It must be broken to him before the town crier knows it. I dine with the dear fellow to-morrow and next day, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, but it would never do to spoil his feast days. He always worries about me, and Modley coddlies in the merest trifles. The news is sure to overset him. How on earth shall this be broken to Jack? He must be told, I suppose, said Rosa. My dear Rosa, who ought to be in our confidence, if not Jack? My guardian promised to come down. If I should write and ask him, I am going to do so. Would you like to leave it to him? A bright idea, cried Edwin. The other trustee, nothing more natural. He comes down, he goes to Jack. He relates what we have agreed upon, and he states our case better than we could. He has already spoken feelingly to me, and he'll put the whole thing feelingly to Jack. That's it. I am not a coward, Rosa, but to tell you a secret, I am a little afraid of Jack. No, no, you are not afraid of him, cried Rosa, turning white and clasping her hands. "'Why, Sister Rosa, Sister Rosa, what do you see from the turret?' 
said Edward, rallying her. My dear girl! You frightened me, most unintentionally, but I am as sorry as if I had meant to do it. Could you possibly suppose for a moment, from any loose way of speaking of mine, that I was literally afraid of the dear fond fellow? What I mean is, that he is subject to a kind of paroxysm or fit. I saw him in it once, and I don't know but that so great a surprise coming upon him direct from me, whom he is so wrapped up in, might bring it on perhaps, which, and this is the secret I was going to tell you, is another reason for your guardian's making the communication. He is so steady, precise, and exact, and he will talk Jack's thoughts into shape in no time, whereas with me Jack is always impulsive and hurried, and, I may say, almost womanish. Rosa seemed convinced. Perhaps from her own very different point of view of Jack, she felt comforted and protected by the interposition of Mr. Grugius between herself and him. And now Edwin Drood's right hand closed again upon the ring in its little case, and again was checked by the consideration, "'It is certain now that I am to give it back to him, then why should I tell her of it?' That pretty sympathetic nature which could be so sorry for him in the blight of their childish hopes of happiness together, and could so quietly find itself alone in a new world, to weave fresh wreaths of such flowers as it might prove to bear, the old world's flowers being withered, would be grieved by these sorrowful jewels. And to what purpose? Why should it be? They were but a sign of broken joys and baseless projects. In their very beauty they were, as the unlikeliest of men had said, almost a true satire on the loves, hopes, plans of humanity, which are able to forecast nothing, and are so little brittle dust. Let them be. He would restore them to her guardian when he came down. He in his turn would restore them to the cabinet from which he had unwillingly taken them, and there, like old letters or old vows, or other records of old aspirations come to nothing, they would be disregarded, until, being valuable, they were sold into circulation again, to repeat their former round. Let them be. Let them lie unspoken of in his breast. However distinctly or indistinctly he entertained these thoughts, he arrived at the conclusion, let them be. Among the mighty store of wonderful chains, that are for ever forging day and night in the vast ironworks of time and circumstance. There was one chain forged in the moment of that small conclusion, riveted to the foundations of heaven and earth, and gifted with invincible force to hold and drag. He walked on by the river. They began to speak of their separate plans. He would quicken his departure from England, and she would remain where she was, at least as long as Helena remained. The poor dear girls should have their disappointment broken to them gently, and, as the first preliminary, Miss Twinkleton should be confided in by Rosa, even in advance of the reappearance of Mr. Grugius. It should be made clear in all quarters that she and Edwin 
were the best of friends. There had never been so serene an understanding between them since they were first affianced, and yet there was one reservation on each side, on hers that she intended through her guardian to withdraw herself immediately from the tuition of her music-master, on his that he did already entertain some wandering speculations whether it might ever come to pass that he would know more of Miss Landless. The bright, frosty day declined as they walked and spoke together. The sun dipped in the river far behind them, and the old city lay red before them as their walk drew to a close. The moaning water cast its seaweed duskily at their feet when they turned to leave its margin, and the rooks hovered above them with hoarse cries, darker splashes in the evening air. "'I will prepare Jack for my flitting soon,' said Edward in a low voice, "'and I will but see your guardian when he comes, and then go before they speak together. It will be better done without my being by. Don't you think so?' "'Yes.' "'We know we have done right, Rosa.' "'Yes.' "'We know we are better so, even now.' "'And shall be far, far better so by and by.' Still there was that lingering tenderness in their hearts towards the old positions they were relinquishing, that they prolonged their parting. When they came among the elm-trees by the cathedral, where they had last sat together, they stopped as by consent, and Rosa raised her face to his, as she had never raised it in the old days, for they were old already. "'God bless you, dear. Good-bye.' "'God bless you, dear. Good-bye.' They kissed each other fervently. "'Now please take me home, Eddie, and let me be by myself.' "'Don't look round, Rosa,' he cautioned her, as he drew her arm through his and led her away. "'Didn't you see Jack?' "'No. Where?' "'Under the trees. He saw us as we took leave of each other.' "'Poor fellow! He little thinks we have parted. "'This will be a blow to him, I am much afraid.' She hurried on without resting, and hurried on until they had passed under the gatehouse into the street. Once there, she asked, "'Has he followed us? "'You can look without seeming to. "'Is he behind?' "'No. Yes, he is.' He has just passed out under the gateway. The dear sympathetic old fellow likes to keep us in sight. I am afraid he will be bitterly disappointed. She pulled hurriedly at the handle of the hoarse old bell, and the gate soon opened. Before going in she gave him one last wide, wondering look, as if she would have asked him with imploring emphasis, Oh, don't you understand? And out of that look he vanished from her view. End of chapter 13 Read by Alan Chant of Tunbridge in Kent, England At Easter 2008
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. The Mystery of Edwin Drood, the unfinished novel by Charles Dickens. Chapter 14. When Shall These Three Meet Again? Christmas Eve in Cloisterham. A few strange faces in the streets. A few other faces, half strange and half familiar, once the faces of Cloisterham children, now the faces of men and women who come back from the outer world at long intervals to find the city wonderfully shrunken in size, as if it had not washed by any means well in the meantime. To these the striking of the cathedral clock and the cawing of the rooks from the cathedral tower are like voices in their nursery time. To such as these it has happened in their dying hours afar off that they have imagined their chamber-floor to be strewn with the autumnal leaves fallen from the elm-trees in the close. So have the rustling sounds and fresh scents of their earliest impressions revived when the circle of their lives was very nearly traced, and the beginning and the end were drawing closer together. Seasonable tokens are about. Red berries shine here and there in the lattices of Minor Cannon Corner. Mr. and Mrs. Tope are daintily sticking sprigs of holly into the carvings and sconces of the cathedral stalls, as if they were sticking them into the coat buttonholes of the dean and chapter. Lavish profusion is in the shops, particularly in the articles of currants, raisins, spices, candied peel, and moist sugar. An unusual air of gallantry and dissipation is abroad, evinced in an immense bunch of mistletoe hanging in the greengrocer's shop doorway, and a very poor twelfth cake, culminating in the figure of a harlequin. Such a very poor little twelfth cake, that one would rather called it a twenty-fourth cake or a forty-eighth cake, to be raffled for at the pastry-cook's terms one shilling per member. Public amusements are not wanting. The waxwork, which made so deep an impression on the reflective mind of the Emperor of China, is to be seen by particular desire during Christmas week only, on the premises of the bankrupt livery stable-keeper up the lane. And a new grand comic Christmas pantomime is to be produced at the theatre, the latter heralded by the portrait of Signor Jacksonini, the clown, saying, "'How do you do to-morrow?' quite as large as life, and almost as miserably. In short, Cloisterham is up and doing, though from this description the high school and Miss Twinkleton's are to be excluded. From the former establishment, the scholars have gone home, every one of them in love with one of Miss Twinkleton's young ladies, who knows nothing about it, and only the handmaidens flutter occasionally in the windows of the latter. It is noticed, by the by, that these damsels become, within the limits of decorum, more skittish when thus entrusted with the concrete representation of their sex, than when dividing the representation with Miss Twinkleton's young ladies. Three are to meet at the gatehouse to-night. 
How does each one of the three get through the day? Neville Landless, though absolved from his books for the time by Mr. Crisparkle, whose fresh nature is by no means insensible to the charms of a holiday, reads and writes in his quiet room, with a concentrated air, until it is two hours past noon. He then sets himself to clearing his table, to arranging his books, and to tearing up and burning his stray papers. He makes a clean sweep of all untidy accumulations, puts all his drawers in order, and leaves no note or scrap of paper undestroyed, save such memoranda as bear directly on his studies. This done, he turns to his wardrobe, selects a few articles of ordinary wear, among them change of stout shoes and socks for walking, and packs these in a knapsack. This knapsack is new, and he bought it in the High Street yesterday. He also purchased at the same time and at the same place a heavy walking-stick, strong in the handle for the grip of the hand, and iron shod. He tries this, swings it, poises it, and lays it by, with the knapsack, on a window-seat. By this time his arrangements are complete. He dresses for going out, and is in the act of going, indeed, has left his room, and has met the minor canon on the staircase coming out of his bedroom upon the same story, when he turns back again for his walking-stick, thinking he will carry it now. Mr. Crisparkle, who has paused on the staircase, sees it in his hand on his immediately reappearing, takes it from him, and asks him with a smile how he chooses a stick. "'Really, I don't know that I understand the subject,' he answers. "'I choose it for its weight.' "'Much too heavy, Neville, much too heavy.' "'To rest upon in a long walk, sir?' "'Rest upon?' repeats Mr. Crisparkle, throwing himself into pedestrian form. "'You don't rest upon it. You merely balance with it.' "'I shall know better with practice, sir. I have not lived in a walking country, you know.' "'True,' says Mr. Crisparkle. "'Get into a little training, and we will have a few score miles together.' I should leave you nowhere now. Do you come back before dinner? I think not, as we dine early. Mr. Crisparkle gives him a bright nod and a cheerful good-bye, expressing, not without intention, absolute confidence and ease. Neville repairs to the nun's house, and requests that Miss Landless may be informed that her brother is there by appointment. He waits at the gate, not even crossing the threshold, for he is on his parole not to put himself in Rosa's way. His sister is at least as mindful of the obligation they have taken on themselves as he can be, and loses not a moment in joining him. They meet affectionately, avoid lingering there, and walk towards the upper inland country. "'I am not going to tread upon forbidden ground, Helena,' says Neville, when they have walked some distance and are turning. You will understand in another moment that I cannot help referring to—what shall I say?—my infatuation. Had you not better avoid it, Neville? You know that I can hear nothing. You can hear, my dear, what Mr. Crisparkle has heard, and heard with approval. 
Yes, I can hear so much. Well, it is this. I am not only unsettled and unhappy myself, but I am conscious of unsettling and interfering with other people. How do I know that, but for my unfortunate presence, you and— and the rest of that former party, our engaging guardian excepted, might be dining cheerfully in Minor Cannon Corner to-morrow. Indeed, it probably would be so. I can see too well that I am not high in the old lady's opinion, and it is easy to understand what an irksome clog I must be upon the hospitalities of her orderly house, especially at this time of year, when I must be kept asunder from this person, and there is such a reason for my not being brought into contact with that person, and an unfavourable reputation has preceded me with such another person, and so on. I have put this very gently to Mr. Crisparkle, for you know his self-denying ways. But still I have put it. What I have laid much greater stress upon at the same time is— that I am engaged in a miserable struggle with myself, and that a little change and absence may enable me to come through it the better. So the weather being bright and hard, I am going on a walking expedition, and intend taking myself out of everybody's way, my own included, I hope, to-morrow morning. When to come back? In a fortnight. And going quite alone? I am much better without company, even if there were any one but you to bear me company, my dear Helena. Mr. Crisparkle entirely agrees, you say? Entirely. I am not sure but that at first he was inclined to think it rather a moody scheme, and one that might do a brooding mind harm. But we took a moonlight walk last Monday night, to talk it over at leisure, and I represented the case to him as it really is. I showed him that I do not want to conquer myself, and that this evening, well got over, it is surely better that I should be away from here just now than here. I could hardly help meeting certain people walking together here, and that could do no good, and is certainly not the way to forget. A fortnight hence— that chance will probably be over for the time, and when it again arises for the last time, why, I can again go away. Father, I really do feel hopeful of bracing exercise and wholesome fatigue. You know that Mr. Crisparkle allows such things their full weight in the preservation of his own sound mind in his own sound body and that his just spirit is not likely to maintain one set of natural laws for himself, and another for me. He yielded to my view of the matter, when convinced that I was honestly in earnest, and so, with his full consent, I start to-morrow morning, early enough to be not only out of the streets, but out of hearing of the bells when the good people go to church. Helena thinks it over and thinks well of it. Mr. Crisparkle doing so, she would do so. But she does originally, out of her own mind, think well of it as a healthy project, denoting a sincere endeavour and an active attempt at self-correction. 
She is inclined to pity him, poor fellow, for going away solitary on the great Christmas festival, but she feels it much more to the purpose to encourage him. And she does encourage him. Will he write to her? He will write to her every alternate day, and tell her all his adventures. Does he send clothes on in advance of him? My dear Helena, no. Travel like a pilgrim, with wallet and staff. My wallet, or my knapsack, is packed, and ready for strapping on, and here is my staff. He hands it to her. She makes the same remark as Mr. Crisparkle, that it is very heavy, and gives it back to him, asking what wood it is. Ironwood. Up to this point he has been extremely cheerful. Perhaps the having to carry his case with her, and therefore to present it in its brightest aspect, has roused his spirits. Perhaps the having done so with success is followed by a revulsion. As the day closes in, and the city lights begin to spring up before them, he grows depressed. "'I wish I were not going to this dinner, Helena.' "'Dear Neville, is it worth while to care much about it?' Think how soon it will be over. How soon it will be over, he repeats gloomily. Yes, but I don't like it. There may be a moment's awkwardness, she cheeringly represents to him, but it can only last a moment. He is quite sure of himself. I wish I felt as sure of everything else as I feel of myself, he answers her. How strangely you speak, dear. What do you mean? Helena, I don't know. I only know that I don't like it. What a strange dead weight there is in the air. She calls his attention to those copperous clouds beyond the river, and says that the wind is rising. He scarcely speaks again, until he takes leave of her at the gate of the nun's house. She does not immediately enter when they have parted, but remains looking after him along the street. Twice he passes the gatehouse, reluctant to enter. At length, the cathedral clock chiming one quarter, with a rapid turn he hurries in. And so he goes up the postern stair. Edward Drood passes a solitary day. Something of deeper moment than he had thought has gone out of his life, and in the silence of his own chamber he wept for it last night. Though the image of Miss Landless still hovers in the background of his mind, the pretty little affectionate creature, so much firmer and wiser than he had supposed, occupies its stronghold. It is with some misgiving of his own unworthiness that he thinks of her, and of what they might have been to one another if he had been more in earnest some time ago, if he had set a higher value on her, if, instead of accepting his lot in life as an inheritance of course, he had studied the right way to its appreciation and enhancement. And still for all this, and though there is a sharp headache in all this, the vanity and caprice of youth sustain that handsome figure of Miss Landless in the background of his mind. That was a curious look of Rosa's when they parted at the gate. Did it mean that she saw below the surface of his thoughts, 
and down into their twilight depths. Scarcely that, for it was a look of astonished and keen inquiry. He decides that he cannot understand it, though it was remarkably expressive. As he only waits for Mr. Grugius now, and will depart immediately after having seen him, he takes a sauntering leave of the ancient city and its neighbourhood. He recalls the time when Rosa and he walked here and there, mere children, full of the dignity of being engaged. Poor children, he thinks, with a pitying sadness. Finding that his watch has stopped, he turns into the jeweller's shop to have it wound and set. The jeweller is knowing on the subject of a bracelet, which he begs to submit, in a general and quite aimless way, it would suit, he considers, a young bride to perfection, especially if of rather a diminutive style of beauty. Finding the bracelet but coldly looked at, the jeweller invites attention to a tray of rings for gentlemen. Here is a style of ring now, he remarks, a very chaste signet, which gentlemen are much given to purchasing when changing their condition. A ring of very reasonable appearance, with the date of their wedding-day engraved inside, several gentlemen have preferred it to any other kind of memento. The rings are as coldly viewed as the bracelet. Edwin tells the tempter that he wears no jewellery but his watch and chain, which were his father's, and his shirt-pin. "'That I was aware of,' is the jeweller's reply for Mr. Jasper dropped him for a watch-glass the other day, and, in fact, I showed these articles to him, remarking that if he should wish to make a present to a gentleman relative on any particular occasion, but he said, with a smile, that he had an inventory in his mind of all the jewellery his gentleman relative ever wore, namely his watch and chain and his shirt-pin. Still, the jeweller considers, that might not apply to all times— though applying to the present time. Twenty minutes past two, Mr. Drood, I set your watch at. Let me recommend you not to let it run down, sir. Edwin takes his watch, puts it on, and goes out, thinking, Dear old Jack, if I were to make an extra crease in my neckcloth, he would think it worth noticing. He strolls about and about, to pass the time until the dinner-hour. It somehow happens that Cloisterham seems reproachful to him to-day, has fault to find with him, as if he had not used it well, but is far more pensive with him than angry. His wanton carelessness is replaced by a wistful looking at, and dwelling upon all the old landmarks. He will soon be far away, and may never see them again, he thinks. Poor youth, poor youth! As dusk draws on, he paces the monk's vineyard. He has walked to and fro full half an hour by the cathedral chimes, and it has closed in dark before he becomes quite aware of a woman crouching on the ground near a wicked gate in a corner. The gate commands a cross-by-path, little used in the gloaming, and the figure must have been there all the time though he has but gradually and lately made it out. He strikes into that path and walks up to the wicket. By the light of a lamp near it, he sees that the woman is of haggard appearance, and that her weazen chin is resting on her hands, and that her eyes are staring, 
with an unwinking, blind sort of steadfastness, before her. Always kind, but moved to be unusually kind this evening, and having bestowed kind words on most of the children and aged people he has met, he at once bends down and speaks to this woman. "'Are you ill?' "'No, dearie,' she answers, without looking at him, and with no departure from her strange, blind stare. "'Are you blind?' "'No, dearie.' "'Are you lost, homeless, faint? What is the matter that you stay here in the cold so long, without moving?' By slow and stiff efforts she appears to contract her vision until it can rest upon him, and then a curious film passes over her, and she begins to shake. He straightens himself, recoils a step and looks down at her in a dread amazement, for he seems to know her. "'Good heavens!' he thinks. Next moment, "'Like Jack that night!' As he looks down at her, she looks up at him and whimpers, "'My lungs is weakly! My lungs is dreadful bad! Poor me! Poor me! <coughs> My cough! is rattling dry <coughs> and coughs in confirmation horribly where did you come from <coughs> come from london dearie her cough still rending her where are you going to back to london dearie i came here looking for a needle in a haystack and I ain't found it. Look here, dearie, give me three and sixpence, and don't you be afeard of me. I'll get back to London then and trouble no one. I'm in a business. I <clears throat> me, it's slack, it's slack, and times is very bad. But I can make a shift to live by it. <coughs> Do you eat opium? Spokes it, she replies with difficulty, still racked by her cough. Give me three and sixpence, and I'll lay it out well and get back. If you don't give me three and sixpence, don't give me a brass farden. And if you do give me three and sixpence, dearie, I'll tell you something. He counts the money from his pocket and puts it in her hand. She instantly clutches it tight, and rises to her feet with a croaking laugh of satisfaction. Bless ye! Harky, dear gentleman, what's your christen name? Edwin. 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 Edwin, she repeats, trailing off into a drowsy repetition of the word, and then asks suddenly, Is the short of that name, Eddie? "'It is sometimes called so,' he replies, with the colour starting to his face. "'Don't sweet hearts call it so?' she asks, pondering. "'How should I know?' "'Haven't you a sweetheart upon your soul?' "'None.' She is moving away with another, "'Bless ye and thank ye, dearie,' when he adds, you were to tell me something. 
you may as well do so. So I was, so I was. Well then, whisper. You be thankful that your name ain't Ned. <coughs> he looks at her quite steadily as he asks, Why? Because it's a bad name to have just now. How a bad name? A threatened name. A dangerous name. The proverb says that threatened men live long, he tells her lightly. Then Ned, so threatened is he. Wherever he may be while I am a-talking to you, dearie, should live to all eternity replies the woman. She has leaned forward to say it in his ear, with her forefinger shaking before his eyes, and now huddles herself together, and with another, Bless ye and thank ye, goes away in the direction of the traveller's lodging-house. This is not an inspiriting close to a dull day. Alone in a sequestered place, surrounded by vestiges of old time and decay, it rather has a tendency to call a shudder into being. He makes for the better lighted streets, and resolves as he walks on to say nothing of this to-night, but to mention it to Jack, who alone calls him Ned, as an odd coincidence to-morrow. Of course, only as a coincidence, and not as anything better worth remembering. Still it holds him, as many things much better worth remembering never did. He has another mile or so to linger out before the dinner hour, and, when he walks over the bridge and by the river, the woman's words are in the rising wind, in the angry sky, in the troubled water, in the flickering lights. There is some solemn echo of them, even in the cathedral chime, which strikes a sudden surprise to his heart, as he turns in under the archway of the gatehouse. And so he goes up the postern stair. John Jasper passes a more agreeable and cheerful day than either of his guests. Having no music lessons to give in the holiday season, his time is his own, but for the cathedral services. He is early among the shopkeepers, ordering little table luxuries that his nephew likes. His nephew will not be with him long, he tells his provision dealers, and so must be petted and made much of. While out on his hospitable preparations, he looks in on Mr. Sapsea, and mentions that dear Ned and that inflammable young spark of Mr. Chris Sparkles are to dine at the gatehouse to-day and make up their difference. Mr. Sapsea is by no means friendly towards the inflammable young spark. He says that his complexion is un-English. And when Mr. Sapsea has once declared anything to be un-English, he considers that thing everlastingly sunk in the bottomless pit. John Jasper is truly sorry to hear Mr. Sapsea speak thus, for he knows right well that Mr. Sapsea never speaks without a meaning, and that he has a very subtle trick of being right. Mr. Sapsea, by a very remarkable coincidence, is of exactly that opinion. 
Mr. Jasper is in beautiful voice this day, in the pathetic supplication to have his heart inclined to keep this law. He quite astonishes his fellows by his melodious power. He has never sung difficult music with such skill and harmony as in this day's anthem. His nervous temperament is occasionally prone to take difficult music a little too quickly. Today his time is perfect. These results are probably attained through a grand composure of the spirits. The mere mechanism of his throat is a little tender, for he wears, both with his singing robe and with his ordinary dress, a large black scarf of close-woven silk, slung loosely round his neck. But his composure is so noticeable that Mr. Crisparkle speaks of it as they come out from Vespers. "'I must thank you, Jasper, for the pleasure with which I have heard you to-day. Beautiful, delightful! You could not have so outdone yourself, I hope, without being wonderfully well.' "'I am wonderfully well.' "'Nothing unequal,' says the Minor Canon, with a smooth motion of his hand. "'Nothing unsteady, nothing forced, nothing avoided.' all thoroughly done in a masterful manner, with perfect self-command. "'Thank you. I hope so, if it is not too much to say. One would think, Jasper, that you have been trying a new medicine for that occasional indisposition of yours.' "'No, really. That's well observed, for I have.' "'Then stick to it, my good fellow.' says Mr. Chris Sparkle, clapping him on the shoulder with friendly encouragement. Stick to it! I will. I congratulate you, Mr. Chris Sparkle pursues, as they come out of the cathedral, on all accounts. Thank you again. I will walk round the corner with you, if you don't object. I have plenty of time before my company comes and I want to say a word to you which I think you will not be displeased to hear. What is it? Well, we were speaking the other evening of my black humours. Mr. Chris Sparkle's face falls, and he shakes his head deploringly. I said, you know, that I should make you an antidote to those black humours. And you said you hoped I would consign them to the flames. And I hope, and I still hope so, Jasper. With the best reason in the world, I mean to burn this year's diary at the year's end. Because you, Mr. Chris Sparkle brightens greatly as he thus begins, you anticipate me? Because I feel that I have been out of sorts, gloomy, bilious, brain-oppressed, whatever it may be. You said I had been exaggerative. So I have. Mr. Chris Sparkle's brightened face brightened still more. I couldn't see it then, because I was out of sorts. But I am in a healthier state now, and I acknowledge it with genuine pleasure. I made a great deal of a very little, that's the fact. It does me good, 
cries Mr. Crisparkle, to hear you say it. A man leading a monotonous life, Jasper proceeds, and getting his nerves or his stomach out of order, dwells upon an idea until it loses its proportions. That was my case with the idea in question. So I shall burn the evidence of my case when the book is full, and begin the next volume with a clearer vision. This is better, says Mr. Crisparkle, stopping at the steps of his own door to shake hands, than I could have hoped. Why, naturally, returns Jasper, you have but little reason to hope that I should become more like yourself. You are always training yourself to be, mind and body, as clear as crystal. And you always are, and never change. Whereas I am a muddy, solitary, moping weed. However, I have got over that mope. Shall I wait while you ask if Mr. Neville has left for my place? If not, he and I may walk round together. I think, says Mr. Crisparkle, opening the entrance door with his key, that he left some time ago. At least I know he left, and I think he has not come back. But I'll inquire. You won't come in? My company wait said Jasper with a smile. The minor canon disappears, and in a few moments returns. As he thought, Mr. Neville has not come back. Indeed, as he remembers now, Mr. Neville said he will probably go straight to the gatehouse. Bad manners in a host, says Jasper. My company will be there before me. What will you bet that I don't find my company embracing? I will bet, or I would if I ever bet, returns Mr. Crisparkle, that your company will have a gay entertainer this evening. Jasper nods and laughs good night. He retraces his steps to the cathedral door and turns down past it to the gatehouse. He sings in a low voice and with delicate expression as he walks along. It still seems as if a false note were not within his power to-night, and as if nothing could hurry or retard him. Arriving thus under the arched entrance of his dwelling, he pauses for an instant in the shelter to pull off that great black scarf, and bang it in a loop upon his arm. For that brief time his face is knitted and stern, but it immediately clears, as he resumes his singing and his way. And so he goes up the postern stair. The red light burns steadily all the evening in the lighthouse on the margin of the tide of busy life. Softened sounds and hum of traffic pass it and flow on irregularly into the lonely precincts. But very little else goes by save violent rushes of wind. It comes on to blow a boisterous gale. The precincts are never particularly well lighted, but the strong blasts of wind blowing out many of the lamps, in some instances shattering the frames too and bringing the glass rattling to the ground, they are unusually dark to-night. 
The darkness is augmented and confused by flying dust from the earth, dry twigs from the trees, and great ragged fragments from the rooks' nests up in the tower. The trees themselves so toss and creak, as this tangible part of the darkness madly whirls about, that they seem in a peril of being torn out of the earth, while ever and again a crack and a rushing fall denote that some large branch has yielded to the storm. Not such power of wind has blown for many a winter night. Chimneys topple in the streets, and people hold to posts and corners, and to one another, to keep themselves upon their feet. The violent rushes abate not, but increase in frequency and fury, until, at midnight, when the streets are empty, the storm goes thundering along them, rattling at all the latches, and tearing at all the shutters, as if warning the people to get up and fly with it, rather than have the roofs brought down upon their brains. Still the red light burns steadily. Nothing is steady but the red light. All through the night the wind blows and abates not. But early in the morning, when there is barely enough light in the east to dim the stars, it begins to lull. From that time, with occasional wild charges, like a wounded monster dying, it drops and sinks, and at full daylight it is dead. It is then seen that the hands of the cathedral clock are torn off, that lead from the roof has been stripped away, rolled up and blown into the clothes, and that some great stones have been displaced upon the summit of the great tower. Christmas morning, though it be, it is necessary to send workmen up to ascertain the extent of the damage done. These, led by Durdles, go aloft, while Mr. Tope and a crowd of early idlers gather down in Minor Cannon Corner, shading their eyes, and watching for their appearance up there. This cluster is suddenly broken, and put aside by the hands of Mr. Jasper, all the gazing eyes are brought down to the earth by his loudly inquiring of Mr. Crisparkle at an open window. "'Where is my nephew?' "'He has not been here. Is he not with you?' "'No. He went down to the river last night with Mr. Neville, to look at the storm, and has not been back. Call Mr. Neville.' "'He left this morning early.' "'Left?' This morning early? Let me in, let me in! There is no more looking up at the tower now. All the assembled eyes are turned on Mr. Jasper, white, half-dressed, panting, and clinging to the rail before the minor canon's house. End of chapter 14 Read by Alan Chant of Tunbridge in Kent, England, during the summer of 2008. Chapter 15 of The Mystery of Edwin Drood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. 
The Mystery of Edwin Drood, the unfinished novel by Charles Dickens. Chapter 15. Impeached. Neville Landless had started so early, and walked at so good a pace, that when the church bells began to ring in Cloisterham for morning service, he was eight miles away. As he wanted his breakfast by that time, having set forth on a crust of bread, he stopped at the next roadside tavern to refresh. Visitors in want of breakfast, unless they were horses or cattle, for which class of guests there was preparation enough in the way of water-trough and hay, were so unusual at the sign of the tilted wagon, that it took a long time to get the wagon into the track of tea and toast and bacon. Neville, in the interval, sitting in a sanded parlour, wondering in how long a time after he had gone the sneezy fire of damp faggots would begin to make somebody else warm. Indeed, the tilted wagon, as a cool establishment on the top of a hill, where the ground before the door was puddled with damp hooves and trodden straw, where a scolding landlady slapped a moist baby, with one red sock on and one wanting, in the bar, where the cheese was cast aground upon a shelf in company with a mouldy tablecloth and a green-handled knife in a sort of cast-iron canoe, where the pale-faced bread shed tears of crumb over its shipwreck in another canoe, where the family linen, half-washed and half-dried, led a public life of lying about, where everything to drink was drunk out of mugs, and everything else was suggestive of a rhyme to mugs. The tilted wagon, all these things considered, hardly kept its painted promise of providing good entertainment for man and beast. However, man, in the present case, was not critical, but took what entertainment he could get, and went on again after a longer rest than he needed. He stopped at some quarter of a mile from the house, hesitating whether to pursue the road or to follow a cart-track between two high hedgerows which led across the slope of a breezy heath, and evidently struck into the road again by and by. He decided in favour of this latter track, and pursued it with some toil, the rise being steep and the way worn into deep ruts. He was labouring along, when he became aware of some other pedestrians behind him. As they were coming up at a faster pace than his, he stood aside against one of the high banks to let them pass, but their manner was very curious. Only four of them passed. Other four slackened speed, and loitered as intending to follow him when he should go on. The remainder of the party, half a dozen perhaps, turned, and went back at a great rate. He looked at the four behind him, and he looked at the four before him. They all returned his look. He resumed his way. The four in advance went on, constantly looking back. The four in the rear came closing up. When they all ranged out from the narrow track upon the open slope of the heath, and this order was maintained, let him diverge as he would to either side, there was no longer room to doubt that he was beset by these fellows. He stopped, as a last test, and they all stopped. 
"'Why do you attend upon me in this way?' he asked the whole body. "'Are you a pack of thieves?' "'Don't answer him,' said one of the number. He did not see which. "'Better be quiet.' "'Better be quiet,' repeated Neville. "'Who said so?' Nobody replied. "'It's good advice. Whichever of you sulkers gave it,' he went on angrily, "'I will not submit to be penned in between four men there and four men there. I wish to pass, and I mean to pass, those four in front.' They were all standing still, himself included. "'If eight men, or four men, or two men, set upon one,' he proceeded, growing more enraged, "'the one has no chance but to set his mark upon some of them, "'and by the Lord I'll do it if I am interrupted any farther.' Shouldering his heavy stick and quickening his pace, he shot on to pass the four ahead. The largest and strongest man of the numbers changed swiftly to the side on which he came up, and dexterously closed with him, and went down with him, but not before the heavy stick had descended smartly. "'Let him be,' said this man in a suppressed voice, as they struggled together on the grass. "'Fair play! His is the build of a girl to mine, and he's got a weight strap to his back besides. Let him alone. I'll manage him.' After a little rolling about in a close scuffle which caused the faces of both to be besmeared with blood, the man took his knee from Neville's chest and rose, saying, "'There, now take him arm in arm, any two of you.' It was immediately done. "'As to error being a pack of thieves, Mr. Landless,' said the man, as he spat out some blood and wiped more from his face, "'You know better than that at midday. "'We wouldn't a touched you if you hadn't forced us. "'We're going to take you round to the high-road anyhow, "'and you'll find help enough against thieves there if you want it. "'Wipe his face, somebody. "'See how it's a-trickling down him.' "'When his face was cleansed, "'Neville recognised in the speaker Joe, driver of the Cloistrum Omnibus.' whom he had seen but once, and that on the day of his arrival. "'And what I recommend you for the present is, don't talk, Mr. Landless. You'll find a friend waiting for you at the high-road, gone ahead by the other way when we split into two parties. And you had much better say nothing till you come up with him. Bring that stick along, somebody else, and let's be moving.' Utterly bewildered, Neville stared around him, and said not a word. Walking between his two conductors, who held his arms in theirs, he went on as in a dream, until they came again into the high-road, and into the midst of a little group of people. The men who had turned back were among the group, and its central figures were Mr. Jasper and Mr. Chris Sparkle. Neville's conductors took him up to the minor cannon, and there released him, as an act of deference to that gentleman. "'What is all this, sir? What is the matter? I feel as if I had lost my senses,' cried Neville, the group closing in around him. "'Where is my nephew?' asked Mr. Jasper, wildly. 
"'Where is your nephew?' repeated Neville. "'Why do you ask me?' "'I ask you,' retorted Jasper, "'because you were the last person in his company, "'and he is not to be found.' "'Not to be found?' cried Neville, aghast. "'Stay, stay,' said Mr. Crisparkle. "'Permit me, Jasper. "'Mr. Neville, you are confounded. "'Collect your thoughts.' It is of great importance that you should collect your thoughts. Attend to me. I will try, sir, but I seem mad. You left Mr. Jasper last night with Edwin Drood? Yes. At what hour? Uh, was it at twelve o'clock? asked Neville, with his hand to his confused head, and appealing to Jasper. Quite right, said Mr. Crisparkle. The hour Mr. Jasper has already named to me. You went down to the river together? Undoubtedly. To see the action of the wind there. What followed? How long did you stay there? About uh, ten minutes. I should say not more. We then walked together to your house, and he took leave of me at the door. Did he say that he was going down to the river again? No. He said that he was going straight back. The bystanders looked at one another and at Mr. Crisparkle, to whom Mr. Jasper, who had been intensely watching Neville, said in a low, distinct, suspicious voice, What are those stains upon his dress? All eyes were turned towards the blood upon his clothes. "'And here are the same stains upon this stick,' said Jasper, taking it from the hand of the man who held it. "'I know the stick to be his, and he carried it last night. What does this mean?' "'In the name of God, say what it means, Neville,' urged Mr. Crisparkle. "'That man and I,' said Neville, pointing out his late adversary, "'had a struggle for the stick just now.' "'And you may see the same marks on him, sir. "'What was I to suppose when I found myself molested by eight people? "'Could I dream of the true reason, when they would give me none at all?' "'They admitted that they had thought it discreet to be silent, "'and that the struggle had taken place. "'And yet the very men who had seen it looked darkly at the smears which the bright cold air had already dried. "'We must return, Neville,' said Mr. Crisparkle. "'Of course you will be glad to come back to clear yourself?' "'Of course, sir.' "'Mr. Landless will walk at my side,' the minor canon continued, looking around him. "'Come, Neville.' They set forth on the walk back and the others, with one exception, straggled after them at various distances. Jasper walked on the other side of Neville, and never quitted that position. He was silent, while Mr. Crisparkle more than once repeated his former questions, and while Neville repeated his former answers. Also, while they both hazarded some explanatory conjectures. He was obstinately silent because Mr. Crisparkle's manner directly appealed to him to take some part in the discussion, and no appeal would move his fixed face. When they drew near to the city, 
and it was suggested by the minor canon that they might do well in calling on the mayor at once, he assented with a stern nod, but he spake no word, until they stood in Mr. Sapsey's parlour. Mr. Sapsey, being informed by Mr. Crisparkle of the circumstances under which they desired to make a voluntary statement before him, Mr. Jasper broke silence by declaring that he placed his whole reliance, humanly speaking, on Mr. Sapsey's penetration. There was no conceivable reason why his nephew should have suddenly absconded, unless Mr. Sapsey could suggest one, and then he would defer. There was no intelligible likelihood of his having returned to the river and been accidentally drowned in the dark, unless it should appear likely to Mr. Sapsey, and then again he would defer. He washed his hands as clean as he could of all horrible suspicions, unless it should appear to Mr. Sapsey that some such were inseparable from his last companion before his disappearance, not on good terms with previously, and then once more he would defer. His own state of mind, he being distracted with doubts and labouring under dismal apprehensions, was not to be safely trusted. But Mr. Sapsey's was. Mr. Sapsey expressed his opinion that the case had a dark look. In short, and here his eyes rested full on Neville's countenance, an un-English complexion. Having made this grand point, he wandered into a denser haze and maze of nonsense than even a mare might have been expected to disport himself in, and came out of it with a brilliant discovery that to take the life of a fellow-creature was to take something that didn't belong to you. He wavered whether or no he should at once issue his warrant for the committal of Neville Landless to jail, under circumstances of grave suspicion, and he might have gone so far as to do it, but for the indignant protest of the minor canon, who undertook for the young man's remaining in his own house, and being produced by his own hands, whenever demanded. Mr. Jasper then understood Mr. Sapsey to suggest that the river should be dragged, that its banks should be rigidly examined, that particulars of the disappearance should be sent to all outlying places and to London, and that placards and advertisements should be widely circulated imploring Edwin Drood, if for any unknown reason he had withdrawn himself from his uncle's home and society, to take pity on that loving kinsman's sore bereavement and distress, and somehow inform him that he was yet alive. Mr. Sapsey was perfectly understood, for this was exactly his meaning, though he had said nothing about it, and measures were taken towards all these ends immediately. It would be difficult to determine which was the more oppressed with horror and amazement, Neville Landless or John Jasper. But that Jasper's position forced him to be active, while Neville's forced him to be passive, there would have been nothing to choose between them. Each was bowed down and broken. With the earliest light of the next morning, men were at work upon the river, and other men, most of whom volunteered for the service, were examining the banks. All the live-long day the search went on, upon the river with barge and pole and drag and net, 
upon the muddy and rushy shore with jack-boots, hatchet, spade, rope, dogs, and all imaginable appliances. Even at night the river was specked with lanterns and lurid with fires. Far-off creeks into which the tide washed as it changed had their knots of watchers listening to the lapping of the stream and looking out for any burden it might bear. Remote shingle causeways near the sea and lonely points of which there was a race of water had their unwanted flaring cressets and rough-coated figures when the next day dawned. But... No trace of Edwin Drood revisited the light of the sun. All that day again the search went on, now in barge and boat, and now ashore among the osiers, or trampling amidst mud and stakes and jagged stones in low-lying places, where solitary watermarks and signals of strange shapes showed like spectres. John Jasper worked and toiled, but to no purpose— for still no trace of Edwin Drood revisited the light of the sun. Setting his watches for that night again, so that vigilant eyes should be kept on every change of tide, he went home exhausted, unkempt and disordered, bedaubed with mud that had dried upon him, and with much of his clothing torn to rags, he had but just dropped into his easy-chair when Mr. Grugius stood before him. "'This is strange news,' said Mr. Grugius. "'Strange and fearful news!' Jasper had merely lifted up his heavy eyes to say it, and now dropped them again as he drooped, worn out over one side of his easy chair. Mr. Grugius smoothed his head and face, and stood looking at the fire. "'How is your ward?' asked Jasper, after a time, in a faint, fatigued voice. "'Poor little thing! You may imagine her condition.' "'Have you seen his sister?' inquired Jasper, as before. "'Whose?' The curtness of the counter-question, and the cool, slow manner in which, as he put it, Mr. Grugius moved his eyes from the fire to his companion's face, might at any other time have been exasperating. In his depression and exhaustion, Jasper merely opened his eyes to say— the suspected young man's. "'Do you suspect him?' asked Mr. Grugius. "'I don't know what to think. I cannot make up my mind.' "'Nor I,' said Mr. Grugius. "'But you spoke of him as the suspected young man. I thought you had made up your mind.' "'I have just left Miss Landless.' What is her state? Defiance of all suspicion, and unbounded faith in her brother. Poor thing! However, pursued Mr. Grugius, it is not of her that I came to speak. It is of my ward. I have a communication to make that will surprise you. At least it has surprised me. Jasper, with a groaning sigh, turned wearily in his chair. "'Shall I put it off till to-morrow?' said Mr. Grugius. "'Mind, I warn you, that I think it will surprise you.' More attention and concentration came into John Jasper's eyes as they caught sight 
of Mr. Grugius smoothing his hair again, and again looking at the fire, but now with a compressed and determined mouth. "'What is it?' demanded Jasper, becoming upright in his chair. "'To be sure,' said Mr. Grugius, provokingly slow and internal, as he kept his eyes on the fire, "'I might have known it sooner. She gave me the opening. But I am such an exceedingly angular man that it never occurred to me. I took all for granted.' "'What is it?' demanded Jasper once more. Mr. Grugius, alternately opening and shutting the palms of his hands as he warmed them at the fire, and looking fixedly at him sideways, and never changing either his action or his look in all that followed, went on to reply, "'This young couple, the lost youth and Miss Rosa my ward, though so long betrothed, and so long recognising their betrothal, and so near being married. Mr. Grugius saw a staring white face, and two quivering white lips in the easy chair, and saw two muddy hands gripping its sides. But for the hands, he might have thought he had never seen the face. This young couple came gradually to the discovery made on both sides pretty equally, I think, that they would be happier and better, both in their present and their future lives, as affectionate friends, or say rather as brother and sister than as husband and wife. Mr. Grugius saw a lead-coloured face in the easy-chair, and on its surface dreadful starting drops or bubbles, as if of steel. This young couple formed at length the healthy resolution of interchanging their discoveries openly, sensibly, and tenderly. They met for that purpose. After some innocent and generous talk, they agreed to dissolve their existing and their intended relations for ever and ever. Mr. Grugius saw a ghastly figure rise, open-mouthed from the easy chair, and lift its outspread hands towards its head. One of this young couple, and that one your nephew, fearful, however, that in the tenderness of your affection for him you would be bitterly disappointed by so wide a departure from his projected life, forbore to tell you the secret for a few days, and left it to be disclosed by me when I should come down to speak to you, and he would be gone. I speak to you, and he is gone. Mr. Grugius saw the ghastly figure throw back its head, clutch its hair with its hands, and turn with a writhing action from him. I have now said all I have to say, except that this young couple parted, firmly, though not without tears and sorrow, on the evening when you last saw them together. 
Mr. Grugius heard a terrible shriek, and saw no ghastly figure, sitting or standing, saw nothing but a heap of torn and miry clothes upon the floor. Not changing his action even then, he opened and shut the palms of his hands as he warmed them, and looked down at it. End of chapter 15 Read by Alan Chant of Tunbridge in Kent, England, during the winter of 2008Chapter 16 of The Mystery of Edwin Drood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. The Mystery of Edwin Drood. The Unfinished Novel by Charles Dickens. Chapter 16 devoted. When John Jasper recovered from his fit or swoon, he found himself being tended by Mr. and Mrs. Tope, whom his visitor had summoned for the purpose. His visitor, wooden of aspect, sat stiffly in a chair with his hands upon his knees, watching his recovery. "'There! You've come too nicely now, sir,' said the tearful Mrs. Tope. "'You were thoroughly worn out, and no wonder.' "'A man,' said Mr. Grugius, with his usual air of repeating a lesson, "'cannot have his rest broken, and his mind cruelly tormented, "'and his body overtaxed by fatigue, without being thoroughly worn out.' "'I fear I have alarmed you.' Jasper apologised faintly when he was helped into his easy chair. "'Not at all, I thank you,' answered Mr. Grugius. "'You are too considerate.' "'Not at all, I thank you,' answered Mr. Grugius again. "'You must take some wine, sir,' said Mrs. Tope, "'and the jelly that I had ready for you.' "'and that you wouldn't put your lips to at noon, "'though I've warned you what would come of it, you know, "'and you not breakfasted, "'and you must have a wing of the roast fowl "'that has been put back twenty times "'if it's been put back once. "'It shall all be on table in five minutes, "'and this good gentleman belike will stop and see you take it.' "'This good gentleman replied with a snort, which might mean yes, or no, or anything, or nothing, and which Mrs. Tope would have found highly mystifying, but that her attention was divided by the service of the table. "'You will take something with me?' said Jasper, as the cloth was laid. "'I couldn't get a morsel down my throat. I thank you,' answered Mr. Grugius. Jasper both ate and drank almost voraciously. Combined with the hurry in his mode of doing it, was an evident indifference to the taste of what he took, suggesting that he ate and drank to fortify himself against other failures of the spirits 
far more than to gratify his palate. Mr. Grugius, in the meantime, sat upright, with no expression in his face, and a hard kind of imperturbably polite protest all over him, as though he would have said, in reply to some invitation to discourse, I couldn't originate the faintest approach to an observation on any subject whatever. I thank you. Do you know, said Jasper, when he had pushed away his plate and glass, and had sat meditating for a few minutes, do you know that I find some crumbs of comfort in the communication with which you have so much amazed me? Do you? returned Mr. Grugius, pretty plainly adding the unspoken clause. I don't. I thank you. After recovering from the shock of a piece of news of my dear boy, so entirely unexpected, and so destructive of all the castles I had built for him, and after having had time to think of it, yes. "'I shall be glad to pick up your crumbs,' said Mr. Grugius dryly. "'Is there not? Or is there, if I deceive myself, tell me so, and shorten my pain? Is there not, or is there, hope that, finding himself in this new position, and becoming sensitively alive to the awkward burden of explanation, in this quarter and that and the other, with which it would load him, he avoided the awkwardness and took to flight. "'Such a thing might be,' said Mr. Grugius, pondering. "'Such a thing has been. I have read of cases in which people, rather than face a seven days, wonder and have to account for themselves to the idle and impertinent, have taken themselves away, and been long unheard of. "'I believe such things have happened,' said Mr. Grugius, pondering still. "'When I had, and could have, no suspicion,' pursued Jasper, eagerly following the new track, "'that the dear lost boy had withheld anything from me, most of all such a leading matter as this,' What gleam of light was there for me in the whole black sky, when I supposed that his intended wife was here, and his marriage close at hand? How could I entertain the possibility of his voluntarily leaving this place in a manner that would be so unaccountable, capricious, and cruel? But now that I know what you have told me, is there no little chink? through which day pierces? Suppose him to have disappeared of his own act. Is not his disappearance more accountable and less cruel? The fact of his having just parted from your ward is in itself a sort of reason for his going away. It does not make his mysterious departure the less cruel to me, it is true, but it relieves it of cruelty to her. Mr. Grugius could not but assent to this. And even as to me, 
continued Jasper, still pursuing the new track with ardour, and, as he did so, brightening with hope. He knew that you were coming to me. He knew that you were entrusted to tell me what you have told me. If your doing so has awakened a new train of thought in my perplexed mind, it reasonably follows that, from the same premises, he might have foreseen the inferences that I should draw. Grant that he did foresee them, and even the cruelty to me, and who am I, John Jasper, music-master, vanishes. Once more Mr. Grugius could not but assent to this. I have had my distrusts, and terrible distrusts they have been, said Jasper. But your disclosure, overpowering as it was at first, showing me that my own dear boy had had a great disappointing reservation from me, who so fondly loved him, kindles hope within me. You do not extinguish it when I state it, but admit it to be a reasonable hope. I begin to believe it possible, here he clasped his hands, that he may have disappeared from among us of his own accord, and that he may yet be alive and well. Mr. Crisparkle came in at the moment, to whom Mr. Jasper repeated, I begin to believe it possible that he may have disappeared of his own accord, and may yet be alive and well. Mr. Crisparkle, taking a seat, and inquiring, Why so? Mr. Jasper repeated the arguments he had just set forth. If they had been less plausible than they were, the good minor canon's mind would have been in a state of preparation to receive them, as exculpatory of his unfortunate pupil. But he, too, did really attach great importance to the lost young man's having been, so immediately before his disappearance, placed in a new and embarrassing relation towards every one acquainted with his projects and affairs, and the fact seemed to him to present the question in a new light. "'I stated to Mr. Sapsey, when we waited on him,' said Jasper, as he really had done, that there was no quarrel or difference between the two young men at their last meeting. We all know that their first meeting was unfortunately very far from amicable, but all went smoothly and quietly when they were last together at my house. My dear boy was not in his usual spirits. He was depressed. I noticed that, and I am bound henceforth to dwell upon the circumstance the more, now that I know there was a special reason for his being depressed, a reason, moreover, which may possibly have induced him to absent himself. "'I pray to heaven it may turn out so!' exclaimed Mr. Crisparkle. "'I pray to heaven it may turn out so!' repeated Jasper. "'You know,' And Mr. Grugius should now know likewise that I took a great prepossession against Mr. Neville Landless arising out of his furious conduct on that first occasion. You know that I came to you extremely apprehensive 
on my dear boy's behalf, of his mad violence. You know that I even entered in my diary, and showed the entry to you, that I had dark forebodings against him. Mr. Grugius ought to be possessed of the whole case. He shall not, through any suppression of mine, be informed of a part of it, and kept in ignorance of another part of it. I wish him to be good enough to understand that the communication he has made to me has hopefully influenced my mind, in spite of its having been, before this mysterious occurrence took place, profoundly impressed against young Landless. This fairness troubled the minor canon much. He felt that he was not as open in his own dealing. He charged against himself reproachfully that he had suppressed, so far, the two points of a second strong outbreak of temper against Edwin Drood on the part of Neville, and of the passion of jealousy having, to his own certain knowledge, flamed up in Neville's breast against him. He was convinced of Neville's innocence of any part in the ugly disappearance, and yet so many little circumstances combined so woefully against him, that he dreaded to add two more to their cumulative weight. He was among the truest of men, but he had been balancing in his mind, much to its distress, whether his volunteering to tell these two fragments of truth at this time would not be tantamount to a piecing together of falsehood in the place of truth. However, here was a model before him. He hesitated no longer. Addressing Mr. Grugius as one placed in authority by the revelation he had brought to bear on the mystery, and surpassingly angular Mr. Grugius became when he found himself in that unexpected position, Mr. Crisparkle bore his testimony to Mr. Jasper's strict sense of justice, and expressing his absolute confidence in the complete clearance of his pupil from the least taint of suspicion sooner or later, avowed that his confidence in that young gentleman had been formed, in spite of his confidential knowledge, that his temper was of the hottest and fiercest, and that it was directly incensed against Mr. Jasper's nephew, by the circumstance of his romantically supposing himself to be enamoured of the same young lady. The sanguine reaction manifest in Mr. Jasper was proof even against this unlooked-for declaration. It turned him paler, but he repeated that he would cling to the hope he had derived from Mr. Grugius, and that if no trace of his dear boy were found, leading to the dreadful inference that he had been made away with, he would cherish unto the last stretch of possibility the idea that he might have absconded of his own wild will. Now it fell out that Mr. Crisparkle, going away from this conference still very uneasy in his mind, and very much troubled on behalf of the young man whom he held as a kind of prisoner in his own house, took a memorable night-walk. He walked to Cloisterham Weir. He often did so, and consequently there was nothing remarkable in his footsteps tending that way. But the preoccupation of his mind so hindered him from planning any walk, 
or taking heed of the objects he passed, that his first consciousness of being near the weir was derived from the sound of the falling water close at hand. "'How did I come here?' was his first thought, as he stopped. "'Why did I come here?' was his second. Then he stood intently listening to the water, a familiar passage in his reading about airy tongues that syllable men's names, rose so unbidden to his ear that he put it from him with his hand, as if it were tangible. It was starlight. The weir was two full miles above the spot to which the young men had repaired to watch the storm. No search had been made up here, for the tide had been running strongly down at that time of the night of Christmas Eve, and the likeliest places for the discovery of a body, if a fatal accident had happened under such circumstances, all lay, both when the tide ebbed and when it flowed again, between that spot and the sea. The water came over the weir, with its usual sound on a cold starlit night, and little could be seen of it. Yet Mr. Chris Sparkle had a strange idea that something unusual hung about the place. He reasoned with himself. What was it? Where was it? Put it to the proof. What sense did it address? No sense reported anything unusual there. He listened again, and his sense of hearing again checked the water coming over the weir, with its usual sound on a cold starlight night. Knowing very well that the mystery with which his mind was occupied might of itself give the place this haunted air, he strained those hawk's eyes of his for the correction of his sight. He got closer to the weir and peered at its well-known posts and timbers. Nothing in the least unusual was remotely shadowed forth, but he resolved that he would come back early in the morning. The weir ran through his broken sleep all night, and he was back again at sunrise. It was a bright, frosty morning. The whole composition before him when he stood where he had stood last night was clearly discernible in its minutest details. He had surveyed it closely for some minutes, and was about to withdraw his eyes when they were attracted keenly to one spot. He turned his back upon the weir, and looked far away at the sky, and at the earth, and then looked again at that one spot. It caught his sight again immediately, and he concentrated his vision upon it. He could not lose it now, though it was but such a speck in the landscape. It fascinated his sight. His hands began plucking off his coat, for it struck him that at that spot a corner of the weir, something glistened, which did not move and come over with the glistening water-drops, but remained stationary. He assured himself of this. He threw off his clothes, he plunged into the icy water, and swam for the spot. Climbing the timbers, he took from them, caught among the interstices by its chain, a gold watch, bearing engraved upon its back, E. D. He brought the watch to the bank, swam to the weir again, climbed it, and dived off. He knew every hole and corner of all the depths, and dived and dived and dived, until he could bear the cold no more. 
His notion was that he would find the body. He only found a shirt-pin sticking in some mud and ooze. With these discoveries, he returned to Cloisterham, and taking Neville Landless with him, went straight to the mayor. Mr. Jasper was sent for, the watch and shirt-pin were identified, Neville was detained, and the wildest frenzy and fatuity of evil report arose against him. He was of that vindictive and violent nature that, but for his poor sister, who alone had influence over him, and out of whose sight he was never to be trusted, he would be in the daily commission of murder. Before coming to England he had caused to be whipped to death sundry natives, nomadic persons encamping now in Asia, now in Africa, now in the West Indies, and now at the North Pole, vaguely supposed in Cloisterham to be always black, always of great virtue, always calling themselves me, and everybody else massa or mercy, according to sex, and always reading tracts of the obscurest meaning in broken English, but always accurately understanding them in the purest mother-tongue. He had nearly brought Mrs. Chris Sparkle's grey hairs with sorrow to the grave. These original expressions were Mr. Sapse's. He had repeatedly said he would have Mr. Chris Sparkle's life. He had repeatedly said he would have everybody's life, and become, in effect, the last man. He had been brought down to Cloisterham from London by an eminent philanthropist, and why? Because that philanthropist had expressly declared, I owe it to my fellow creatures that he should be, in the words of Bentham, where he is the cause of the greatest danger to the smallest number. These dropping shots from the blunderbusses of blunder-headedness might not have hit him in a vital place. But he had to stand against a trained and well-directed fire of arms of precision, too. He had notoriously threatened the lost young man, and had, according to the showing of his own faithful friend and tutor, who strove so hard for him, a cause of bitter animosity, created by himself and stated by himself, against that ill-starred fellow. He had armed himself with an offensive weapon for the fatal night, and he had gone off early in the morning, after making preparations for departure. He had been found with traces of blood on him. Truly, they might have been wholly caused as he represented, but they might not also. On a search warrant being issued for the examination of his room, clothes, and so forth, it was discovered that he had destroyed all his papers and rearranged all his possessions on the very afternoon of the disappearance. The watch found that the weir was challenged by the jeweller as one he had wound and set for Edwin Drood at twenty minutes past two on that same afternoon, and it had run down before being cast into the water, and it was the jeweller's positive opinion that it had never been rewound. This would justify the hypothesis that the watch was taken from him not long after he had left Mr. Jasper's house at midnight, in company with the last person seen with him, and that it had been thrown away after being retained some hours. Why thrown away? If he had been murdered, and so artfully disfigured, or concealed, or both, 
as that the murderer hoped identification to be impossible, except from something that he wore, assuredly the murderer would seek to remove from the body the most lasting, the best known, and the most easily recognisable things upon it. These things would be the watch and shirt-pin. As to his opportunities of casting them into the river, if he were the object of these suspicions, they were easy, for he had been seen by many persons wandering about on that side of the city, indeed on all sides of it, in a miserable and seemingly half-distracted manner. As to the choice of the spot, obviously such criminating evidence had better take its chance of being found anywhere rather than upon himself, or in his possession. Concerning the reconciliatory nature of the appointed meeting between the two young men, very little could be made of that in young Landless's favour, for it distinctly appeared that the meeting originated not with him, but with Mr. Chris Sparkle, and that it had been urged on by Mr. Chris Sparkle, and who could say how unwillingly, or in what ill-conditioned mood his enforced pupil had gone to it. The more his case was looked into, the weaker it became in every point. Even the broad suggestion that the lost young man had absconded was rendered additionally improbable on the showing of the young lady from whom he had so lately parted, for what did she say, with great earnestness and sorrow when interrogated, that he had expressly and enthusiastically planned with her that he should await the arrival of her guardian, Mr. Grugius, and yet, be it observed, he disappeared before that gentleman arrived. On the suspicions thus urged and supported, Neville was detained, and re-detained, and the search was pressed on every hand, and Jasper laboured night and day. But nothing more was found. No discovery being made which proved the lost man to be dead, it at length became necessary to release the person suspected of having made away with him. Neville was set at large. Then a consequence ensued which Mr. Chris Sparkle had too well foreseen. Neville must leave the place, for the place shunned him and cast him out. Even had it not been so, the dear old China shepherdess would have worried herself to death with fears for her son, and with general trepidation occasioned by their having such an inmate. Even had that not been so, the authority to which the minor canon deferred officially would have settled the point. "'Mr. Crisparkle,' quoth the dean, "'human justice may err, but it must act according to its lights.' The days of taking sanctuary are past. This young man must not take sanctuary with us. You mean that he must leave my house, sir? Mr. Crisparkle, returned the prudent dean, I claim no authority in your house. I merely confer with you on the painful necessity you find yourself under of depriving this young man of the great advantages of your counsel and instruction. "'It is very lamentable, sir,' Mr. Crisparkle represented. "'Very much so,' the dean assented. "'And if it be a necessity,' Mr. Crisparkle faltered, 
as you unfortunately find it to be, returned the dean. Mr. Crisparkle bowed submissively. It is hard to prejudge his case, sir, but I am sensible that just so perfectly. As you say, Mr. Crisparkle, interposed the dean, nodding his head smoothly, there is nothing else to be done. No doubt, no doubt, there is no alternative, as your good sense has discovered. I am entirely satisfied of his perfect innocence, sir, nevertheless. Well, said the dean, in a more confidential tone, and slightly glancing around him, I would not say so generally, not generally. Enough of suspicion attaches to him to— No, I think I would not say so generally. Mr. Crisparkle bowed again. It does not become us, perhaps, pursued the dean, to be partisans, not partisans. We clergy keep our hearts warm and our heads cool, and we hold a judicious middle course. I hope you do not object, sir, to my having stated in public emphatically that he will reappear here whenever any new suspicion may be awakened, or any new circumstance may come to light in this extraordinary matter. Not at all, returned the dean. And yet, do you know, I don't think, with a very nice and neat emphasis on those two words, I don't think, I would state it emphatically. State it, yes, but emphatically, no, I think not. In point of fact, Mr. Crisparkle, keeping our hearts warm and our heads cool, we clergy need to do nothing emphatically. So Minor Canon Row knew Neville Landless no more, and he went whithersoever he would or could with a blight upon his name and fame. It was not until then that John Jasper silently resumed his place in the choir. Haggard and red-eyed, his hopes plainly had deserted him, his sanguine mood was gone, and all his worst misgivings had come back. A day or two afterwards, while unrobing, he took his diary from a pocket of his coat, turned the leaves, and, with an impressive look, and without one spoken word, handed this entry to Mr. Crisparkle to read. My dear boy is murdered. The discovery of the watch and shirt-pin convinces me that he was murdered that night, and that his jewellery was taken from him to prevent identification by its means. All the delusive hopes I had founded on his separation from his betrothed wife, I give to the winds. They perish before this fatal discovery. I now swear and record the oath on this page, that I never more will discuss this mystery with any human creature, until I hold the clue to it in my hand, that I never will relax in my secrecy or in my search, that I will fasten the crime of the murder of my dear dead boy upon the murderer, and that I devote myself to his destruction. 
End of chapter 16 Read by Alan Chant of Tunbridge in Kent, England, during the summer of 2008